Welcome back. This is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett broadcasting live from the proverbial undisclosed location somewhere deep in the woods of western Wisconsin. I'll give you a hint. I'm very close to the Wisconsin River. Hopefully that can't be used for targeting information uh, for those drone programmers up at Camp Douglas or Fort McCoy. Anyway, uh, here we are, wherever we are, and uh, let's get going here with the second hour. And by the way, if you like these radio shows, please do subscribe to my Substack. You can find it by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. Okay, let's continue with our conversation with dissident academicians. After Michael Rechtenwald in the first hour, we're moving on to Professor James Fetzer in the second hour. Jim Fetzer is well known in alternative information circles. Uh, he's done uh, very important work on the JFK assassination. He founded Scholars for 9-11 Truth. And he has gotten uh, heavily involved in the Sandy Hook case, leading to a series of court battles. And I guess it's going to culminate at the U.S. Supreme Court, inshallah. So uh, let's talk about all that and more. Hey, welcome, Jim. How are you? Well, how's my favorite truth, jihad, as my friend? It's been a while. Great, terrific. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still uh, throwing those uh, those verbal bombs and grenades uh, as best I can. So it's yeah, yeah. good to have you back. Yeah. Jim, no, so. it's wonderful to be with you. And of course, you were there. You wrote an absolutely splendid piece on the legal lynching of a truth seeker, uh, Jim Fetzer, Stalinist. Trial styled show trial, Kevin. I think that captured the situation I was in better than anything else anyone else has written. I thought it was just a masterpiece, and of course it was on Un's review. I think that uh, that is just a wonderful publication, and I'm glad uh, a recent piece of mine, "What's Wrong with Conspiracy Theories," has been published there too, and I expect to make other contributions. But I thought you captured. The core of my case, exactly. Well, thanks, Jim. Yeah, I was kind of shocked, actually. I mean, I, I went into that courtroom preparing to be actually a fairly uh, fair-minded, relatively neutral and impartial observer, even though I'm a friend of yours. But I'm one of these weird people that's pretty, I think I like to think of myself as often being pretty good at sort of setting aside things and just kind of trying to look at what the reality is or what are the facts of the case. And, you know, I'm still pretty agnostic on Sandy Hook in general. So I just thought, you know, who knows what's going to happen here. I wasn't really expecting the Stalinist show trial with the blatant emotional manipulation and the obvious prejudice of the court. But, hey, you know, it is what it is. Well, Kevin, you got it exactly right, and of course, uh, you were there for the summary judgment, which is only appropriate in a case when there's no disputed facts. In other words, summary judgment is really an extraordinary measure when all the judge has to do is to determine how the law applies to a case where the factual foundation is not in dispute. The situation was precisely the opposite here. Because the key question over which I was being sued was the authenticity of a death certificate I'd published in a book, which had been provided by, guess who, the guy who was a plaintiff who brought the lawsuit against me for a purported defamation who calls himself Lenny Posner. He'd given it to 
Kelly Watt after they'd had a hundred hours of conversation where Lenny had reached out to her. I think he wanted to find out how much those of us doing research on Sandy Hook had been able to sort out. She told him repeatedly she didn't believe a word he said, didn't believe he had a son, didn't believe his son died at Sandy Hook. And eventually, I mean, this is very late on in this hundred hours of conversation, he said, check out my Google Plus page. And when Kelly went there, there were several documents. There was a copy of a, a passport for Noah Posner. There was a kindergarten card for Noah Posner. And there was a copy of a death certificate which uh, for Noah Posner, which had no file number, no town certification, no state certification. In other words, it was an uncertified death certificate which Kelly shared with me and which I would publish, and nobody died at Sandy Hook and in, a, uh, in a chapter she and I had co-authored, but where uh, it also appeared elsewhere in the book and in a blog where I assisted Robert David Steele in putting to, together a memorandum on Sandy Hook for then-President of the United States, Donald Trump. I also asserted there what the court found to have been false and defamatory, at least defamatory, whether he ever declared it to be false is a good question, but of course truth is an absolute defense. So if it wasn't false, then I couldn't be found in defamation. So I was sued over four sentences that made a, a certain characterization about this death certificate for which I was being sued on the alleged ground of defamation, and you may or may not be aware, Kevin, but in the complaint that was sent to me, to Mike Palachak, to Dave Gehari, where Mike was the co-editor, he actually had picked the title of the book and written a, a prologue for it, whereas I had edited the book, brought all the contributors together and written the uh, – uh, he, he, Mike had written a preface. I'd written a prologue, which gives a summary overview to the entire book, and where Dave Gehari is the publisher of Moonrock Books – they attached a death certificate that was completely unlike the one published. It had a file number, it had a town certification, it had a state certification, and yet in the complaint it claimed they were not materially different. Mm -hmm. Well, material difference is one that makes a difference from the point of view of the law, and you could hardly have any features differing here that were uh, more materially different than the fact that file number where one had, one didn't, uh, town certification, one did, one didn't, state certification, one did, one didn't. In fact, it, 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 Kevin, this case is so absurd that I would eventually learn that Connecticut even have a law that not even parents are allowed to have an uncertified death certificate. Well, when I received this complaint, I thought it was an opportunity to get the massive evidence I'd accumulated with 13 different authors in the book, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. It was a FEMA drill to promote gun control, published on, on 22 October 2015, and had sold nearly 500 copies when it was banned by Amazon on the 19th of November where uh, recognizing this was political, I wasn't going to get anywhere with Amazon arguing about it. I immediately released it for free as a PDF. And where a dear friend who follows these matters has suggested it has been downloaded as many as 10 million times. 
Well, apparently they wanted to cut that off. And the reason for bringing the lawsuit against me was to get a judgment that they could then use to go to the various sources that were distributing the PDF for free and threaten them with a commission of uh, defamation or contempt accord, given that I'd been found guilty of defamation. Because well, you know, that, that strategy strikes me as, as kind of stupid, Jim, given the uh, Streisand effect where, you know, a free PDF on the Internet is so easy to copy and spread around that the more you scream and yell, get that thing off the Internet, get that thing off the Internet, the more people wonder why and the more they look at it. Well, they didn't make that motivation explicit, Kevin. You know, it was supposed to be that I defamed him by presumably implying that he was a liar. Actually, I made no declaration in the book anywhere about Lenny Posner, the motivation, the circumstances. I merely said the document was non-authentic. And by the way, I'm now under a court order, so I cannot reaffirm what I was found to be in defamation, I'm only reporting to you what the lawsuit was about without being able to make that assertion. But would you believe when we had the scheduling conference and I'd already laid out in my answer the massive evidence I had that we had that 13 contributors, including six Ph.D. professors, that we discovered the school had been closed by 2008, that there were no students or teachers there, loaded with asbestos and other biohazards, that we'd even discovered the manual for the FEMA exercise, which had been confirmed on the ground, how there were porta-potties in place in advance, pizza, bottled water available at the firehouse, everyone wearing name tags with, uh, uh, you know, on lanyards, parents bringing children to the scene. I mean, think about it. What parent is going to bring a child to the scene of a child shooting massacre? Zip, zero, zilch, none, not one. I mean, it's insane. But because this was the rehearsal day, this was a two-day exercise for which we even discovered the manual, which I included as Appendix A in the book, for a mass, uh, uh, a mass training exercise involving children, uh, mass casualty exercise involving children, where events on the ground confirmed it, that it was an exercise, there was even a portable sign that said everyone must check in. Well, right in the manual, it says everyone must check in with a controller upon arrival. And in fact, one of the contributions of Wolfgang uh, Halbig, whom, as you know, is a very admirable guy. He's a former Florida state trooper, former U.S. customs agent, former school principal, nationally recognized school safety expert. He initially believed it was all on the up and up, that all these kids had died. So he began making inquiries so that he could instruct other school systems on what steps they should take to make sure it didn't happen to them. And he noticed that his FOIA inquiries weren't being replied, his phone calls weren't being returned. And before he knew it, there were two detectives, homicide detectives from the local precinct on his porch in the gated community in Florida where he resides telling him they were there on behalf of the Connecticut State Police, and if he kept asking questions about Sandy Hook, he would be prosecuted. Well, Kevin, that's so absurd on its face, and his motives were so pure that he turned into a bulldog to go about pursuing this. And, of course, he has been like myself, like James Tracy, others who have sought to expose the truth about Sandy Hook, been severely punished for speaking out. But where Wolfgang in the in the continuous uh, perseverance of his case, was able to organize a formal hearing with witnesses under oath 
And while Monty Frank, who's a local attorney there, was telling people that even though they had a summons to appear, they didn't have to appear to try to sabotage what Wolfgang was doing, uh, Wolfgang got Patricia LaLorda, who is the first select man of Newtown, a position equivalent to mayor, to acknowledge under, er, under oath that the Homeland Security had placed a sign there. Well, Homeland Security shouldn't have had anything to do with it. If it were on the up and up, it was a school shooting that was a state offense, no role for Homeland Security. But since FEMA is a branch of Homeland Security, it was actually confirmation it had been a FEMA drill. We have all this other evidence on you know, the Jim, ground. It's it, interesting that you, you point the finger at FEMA because with 9-11, we also had FEMA coming in right before 9-11 and uh, holding this huge terror drill, uh, envisioning a big anthrax attack. And they hired thousands of off-duty police officers and other city workers to play roles in their their play acting of a gigantic anthrax attack hitting New York City. These were the Tripod 2 bioterror exercises, and they were scheduled, I think it was for Wednesday, and then 9-11 happened on Tuesday. Uh, so FEMA was already there in New York and all set to go. And that uh, does make me uh, kind of wonder about the role that FEMA could play in these kinds of things. Although, I again, my caveat for the listeners is that my interpretation of Sandy Hook is a little different from yours. I'm not fully convinced by the book uh, and the evidence I've seen you present. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if something fishy uh, around Sandy Hook has been distorted by a, a lot of fake evidence that's been generated to, you know, uh, fake images of porta potties, perhaps, fake images of uh, schools that look like they've been shut down for years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to obfuscate the uh, actual reality, which is probably pretty bad already, and then also to allow for the kind of witch hunt that's targeted you and it's been such a huge uh, influence on the wave of Internet censorship. I think of all of the events that have happened during the past 20 years, the Sandy Hook and then the Sandy Hook Truth Movement is number one in terms of providing the public relations pushback that has allowed this huge tidal wave of Internet censorship to just come out of nowhere since about 2016 or so and wash over the entire Internet. And so now we're living in an Internet-censored world where Google and, and all of uh, the algorithms, all of the social media companies are all shadow banning everybody. Uh, they're deplatforming people. The, the free Internet is dead. And the single biggest force behind that is the counter-narrative or the, the pushback against the Sandy Hook counter-narrative. Uh, you and others have been demonized as unfeeling, heartless types who uh, don't care about these poor parents who lost their children. And these court cases against you and Alex Jones and so on have been used to foster that impression. So I wouldn't be surprised if the some of this whole situation has been partly manufactured precisely to create a public relations excuse to crack down on the so-called conspiracy theorists and censor the Internet. Well, you have a very uh, unexpected take to me because the authenticity of all those photographs isn't really in doubt. I mean, there are hundreds of them. Uh, you couldn't have faked all the photographs we have of all the citizens who were turning out for this festive occasion. The porta potties were there in place. I've asked detectives whether they ever heard of porta potties at a crime scene, and they laughed. They thought it was ridiculous. And of course, the day of the shooting, it further confirmed that this was a drill. 
There was no surge of EMTs into the building. There was no string of ambulances to rush their little bodies off to hospitals. Triage tarps were put down, but no bodies were placed of anyone even wounded, much less deceased. They didn't call the medevac helicopters, which they do even for a drill. And just, uh, you know, there are so many points to be made here. The street, there's only one entrance into this uh, uh, alleged elementary school, Dickinson Drive, it was so jammed with vehicles, you couldn't have got an ambulance in there if you wanted to, nor, and this is particularly telling too, could you have got a bus in there, because according to the official report, there were by Stephen Sedinsky, who was the Danbury State's attorney on the shooting at Sandy Hook, there were 489 students there. If you subtract 20 for the alleged decedents, that's 469, plus some 70 cafeteria staff members, janitors who needed to be evacuated, but no evacuation took place. I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. So, yeah, you know, so there, there is a long list of these kinds of items, and I've, I've gone over them, and, and some of them I've seen debunkings that appear to be successful, others not so much. Uh, so there's overall, again, I, I have to end up being kind of agnostic about what actually happened there. Uh, but what I... I'm sure that I saw with my own eyes is that your your court case was was not a, a fair kind of process, and so I, I wondered about whether when you were scheduling and stuff, and you met with Lenny Posner and and some of the other guys, Mike Polachek and Dave Gary, were also being sued from Moonrock Books, and and Dave ended up believing that Lenny lost a child at Sandy Hook, but anyway, during that kind of conferencing. It sensed the whole suit was all simply limited to this argument about this death certificate. Couldn't you have just gotten out of the whole thing by saying, okay, that death certificate that I saw earlier that I reported in the book was not authentic. It didn't have any of these authenticating uh, data or marks on it. Uh, I, I had good reason not to think it was authentic, but now you've shown me one that looks kind of similar and has all these marks. So can I just stipulate that this new death certificate that you brought me appears to be authentic? And would you be satisfied with that, Lenny, and just go away? Did you try to do that? And if not, why not? Because it's not true, because they're, they're, the death certificate they attached was fake just as much as the one that I declared, though I'm not allowed to say it. I obtained the <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, I just made you say it. <laughs> Kevin, 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 I obtained the uh, – Dave Gahari obtained another copy of the death certificate from the town. I obtained another copy of the death certificate from the state. We had altogether four death certificates before the summary judgment hearing during which the – Posner attorney introduced a fifth, and uh, I had two, for not just one, two forensic document examiners review them, and they concluded not one, not two, not three. All four were fake, Kevin. All four were fake. So there was no, I was in this for the truth, right? I mean, that's what I am. I'm a truth junkie. I want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So I was not going to compromise. And as a consequence, the judge, now this is the fascinating part that we don't want to uh, leapfrog, which is this, at the scheduling conference, the judge made the declaration that while he understood that I did not uh, believe that this had been a bona fide event, listen to this, he wasn't going to let me introduce the evidence. Here's what he actually said. He made this unambiguous, clear statement. Whether or not Sandy Hook ever happened is 
or not is not relevant to this, the, the, the truthfulness or the accuracy of the death certificate. Now, I understand the, the defendant's overall theory in believing that it never happened. And I'm not going to take the bait and let this case go down that rabbit hole. Now, in addition, his limited view was further indicated by his refusal to, quote, read your book because it would not be appropriate for me to start educating myself about the larger controversy. Now, what you have to understand, Kevin, is in the death certificate itself, it states the decedent died on 14 December 2012 at Sandy Hook Elementary School of multiple gunshot wounds. So how can it be the evidence I have that nobody died at Sandy Hook is not relevant to the accuracy or the truthfulness of the death certificate? Yeah, you would this, think that he, they would at least have given you the chance to, you know, at least you know bring, say, your your best, you know, five arguments or items of evidence in there, just to sh so you could have the right to show that you had a good faith reason to hold the beliefs that you hold. And that wouldn't have required the court to rule on whether or not your beliefs are true. However, uh, it, it would seem that it's hard for, for the jury to decide whether you are in good faith in saying what you said about the death certificate in the book without having some understanding of why you might believe Sandy Hook happened the way you think it happened. I mean, that to me, that's there's, there's a middle ground here between trying to litigate the entire Sandy Hook incident, which, of course, is would be beyond the scope of that court. But versus you know shutting that out completely and not allowing you to bring any evidence to support your claim that you had a good faith belief about uh, Sandy Hook and therefore about the death certificate. That, that's where I would say that the court was out of line. Well, well, it's much more than that, because I wasn't allowed to introduce any of the evidence, which I'd already outlined to the court already in my initial answer. Yeah, I yeah, and they would, sh they would interrupt you and shut you down and threaten you any time that you started to open your mouth and say anything about what you actually thought. <laughs> you're, <laughs> was, you're talking about in the trial. But remember, Kevin, yeah. now that this was a trial only for damages. In other words, I'd already been found to be guilty of defamation in the summary judgment. Was a court that was just a judge ruling. The part you saw was only the determination of damages. And there, you know, the way they manipulated the evidence, I mean, it was simply grotesque. Let me back up a step or two, however, since we don't want to lose a couple of important threads here, which is the following. When the book was banned, the one party who took the keenest interest by far was Mike Adams. He actually published two or three articles about it. He did an interview with me about it. And when after six or eight weeks after the interview, he hadn't published, I thought, well, maybe he'd abandoned it. Then, bing, there it was on May 6, 2018 by Mike Adams, the most dangerous mind in America interviewed about false flags and extreme censorship. He re recognized the threat that was posed by banning a book. I mean, the whole idea of freedom of speech is to protect controversial speech, not popular speech, which doesn't require any protection, but unpopular speech. Most people may have believed that 20 kids and six adults died at Sandy Hook. Here I had a compendium of 13 experts, including six PhDs, with a mass of evidence, including the manual for the event, that demonstrated conclusively, in my opinion, that nobody died at Sandy Hook. Now, it's the most elementary aspect of our system of justice that you cannot 
uh, uh, forfeit life, uh, property, uh, or, or freedom uh, without a trial and uh, where you're allowed to give a defense. But this jurist, this judge, would not allow me to give a defense. You yeah, said, it, was, it was almost like Alice in Wonderland, you know, or, or Franz Kafka, you know, watching you get sworn in. You know, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. And then do you understand that if you speak the truth as you see it, uh, you will be <laughs> uh, hauled off to jail? <laughs> well, this is where you, where you captured it so beautifully that I was uh, – the judge reprimanded me for speaking the truth when I was under oath. I mean, you got it exactly right, Kevin. I mean, that's one of the brilliant aspects of your piece about that. It kind of, kind of puts you in a box, that's for sure. Another thing that makes me kind of suspicious about the official version of all of this is that it seems to me that with this incredible amount of effort and money that Lenny Posner put into tracking you down and Alex Jones and, and suing you guys and hiring all those lawyers and so on and so forth, with a pretty small fraction of that, it would be possible to produce a very slick, professional, detailed debunking of everything you say in the book. Well, I've looked at the debunkings that are out there, including some of Lenny's, and like I said, some of the points seem val- possibly valid or likely valid, others not so much. But it's all scattershot. It's you actually have to dig around and go through all these blogs and look here and look there, and it's all very uh, confusing. And it wouldn't really be that hard to uh, spend that kind of money that Lenny spent and put together one really good, thorough debunking of your book and put that out there on the internet and make sure that it came up in all the search engines, which of course it would because they would shadow ban you and they would hype it, and Lenny would have a really good way of defending his version of this if he did that. Instead, the debunkings that are out there are, again, scattershot and not very coherent, not really brought together in one place where an interested party can sit down and compare them to your assertions in the book. So there, there's here, not a – so why, why did he have, do that? Why did he have to sue you? Because he could not defend the official narrative and do the what you have suggested doing because the whole thing was uh, fiction. The whole thing was a scripted event, and they botched things up. They didn't get things right, and there were many who were doing studies. Kevin, there are probably 500 videos tearing apart the Sandy Hook narrative that YouTube has taken down and banned because they were so devastating. So they had to do it in a scattershot fashion. That was the best they could do. So in addition, when I had produced my reports from the two document examiners uh, who found all four of the death certificates were fake, that ought to have been decisive in requiring that the case had to be sent to a jury. They had to send it to a jury to resolve this disputed fact. Instead... The judge, during a conversation right before my very eyes, even before I'd been allowed to testify during the summary judgment, had the following conversation with the principal attorney for Posner. Well, you know, he says, if I exclude this evidence, then that'll be grounds for appeal. So I think I'm just going to set it aside as someone else's opinion. And that's what he did. He just set it aside. Here you here you had two, not one, but two document examiners testifying. All four of these death certificates was fake. That certainly raises a question of doubt. Good question, I, for you, Jim. Did, did, did those document examiners say fake or just not authentic? 
fake. Really? They, used to, yeah. they all use the word no, fake? I, I can I sell them to you for crying out loud. Okay. All, all four of them were fake. Because I, I had forgotten that point. Oh, yeah. Very, they were very specific about it, and the judge just set it apart. Now, he's not entitled to do that, as I understand the law. Expert opinions have the same standing in a court as a judge himself. There's okay, something so so, so, so let, let's jump to the appeal. The appeal uh, you, you appeal this to the appeals court and then to the Wisconsin Supreme Court so far. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just want to add one further point that uh, – there was a question here about my status of a journalist, because if I were a journalist, then he had to determine that I had been somehow negligent in my publishing and reporting. But even though I gave him a seven-page accounting of my role as a journalist, I mean, you know, that I'd published 24-plus books in scholarly areas, that I had a dozen-plus books in conspiracy research, that I had thousands of blogs, that I had all these radio shows, and... Not to mention the fact that I was being sued over sentences in chapters, a chapter of a book and a blog that I had authored and that I was the editor of the book. I mean, how could my status as a journalist be in doubt? But the judge never ruled, so he could slip over the fact that there was a higher standard of proof. In effect, get this, Kevin, they never showed that I had done anything wrong, and that's a necessary element of the offense. So it was improper to conclude I'd committed a uh, defamation because you cannot have a liability without fault. And they never showed I'd done anything at fault. So this case was just ridiculous on its face. We, if we have a break, we can take it. Then I'll hit you with all the appellate. Well, actually, we, we don't have a half-hour break. We're going to go right on through to the end of the show, which is coming up in about 25 minutes. Um, so well, so you, you appealed the ruling. And the what, how did the Court of Appeals respond? Well, the Court of Appeals, in the second paragraph, quoted the official Sandy Hook narrative as though it were, you know, uh, engraved in stone. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They baked the question. Now, it turns out they cited a couple of cases that had been resolved on the basis of procedural issues. In other words, there's been no court case that has dealt with the issue of whether anybody died at Sandy Hook. None. None of them. Uh, not even this Remington thing. Not the Alex Jones thing. None of the cases have dealt with the question. They've all been settled on procedural or other grounds, some kind of default. I mean, it was really the insurance companies that wanted to settle this last for $73 million, and I'm going to have a lot to say about you're that. You're talking about the Remington lawsuit. Yes, yes, I so am. So why, why do you think they did that? Why didn't they uh, try to introduce some doubt about what really happened? Well, I'll tell you, Kevin, that's in many ways, you know, that's a, that, that's a big bang for the buck what's going on here. Uh, a, a company named Cerebrus uh, Capital has bought up a number of these uh, um, gun manufacturing companies, including Remington. And Cerebus uh, wants there to be these insurance settlements. I believe they're setting a precedent so that the public, and I think the enormity of the sum was uh, crucial here so no one could overlook it, everyone starts thinking all of a sudden about liability. There's never been a case before when anyone was liable for a weapon and the way it was misused by a criminal. The criminals have been held uh, responsible I mean, suppose someone hits someone over the head with a hammer and kills them, fractures their skull and killing them. You going after the hammer manufacturer? 
or someone, you know, as we had in Kenosha, deliberately drives into a crowd with a car. You're going to sue the automobile GM, the man. Of course, of course gun, guns are quite commonly used in street crimes. And so if there's liability for the manufacturer every time a gun is used in a crime, uh, that would be a good backdoor to gun control, wouldn't it? Well, this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to sneak it in under the way in which the gun was advertised, which I dare say may well have been Sebra setting it up by appealing to young men. I mean, this was the angle they used in in this uh, lawsuit, uh, which was led by nine of the Sandy Hook plaintiffs, the first name which is Donna Summer against Remington. And you'll, and you'll love this, Kevin. When I sought to intervene in that lawsuit to point out that, there's never been a determination that anybody died at Sandy Hook and that that ought to be done before Remington shells out 73 mil. Uh, not only did the Sandy Hook parents oppose my intervention, but so did Remington. Think about it. So did Remington. So the well, fact is they're, they're in on it. They're in on it. And it's just outrageous what's going on, which is why... When I turned around and, you know, the appellate court was so ridiculous by begging the question that I had a very nice appeal to the Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court. And, and by the way, just for the benefit of the audience who won't know this fact, I was unable to locate an attorney to represent me during the, 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 the trial stage of the hearing. It was only the trial for damages and after the summary judgment had been rendered that I was able to secure uh, a Madison attorney to represent me. And, and how, how many attorneys did you contact when you were looking for representation during the trial phase? Oh, Christ, Mike and I went through 70 to 100 easily. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, lawyers have a re- reputation for being willing to represent anybody, you know, Hannibal Lecter, whatever, uh, you know, psychopathic <laughs> killers. But I guess you're worse than Hannibal. Not if you're challenging the official narrative about Sandy Hook. So my my attorney wrote a wonderful appeal, a petition to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and we were wondering why they were sitting on it, sitting on it, sitting on it. And in fact, they only released it when they had this judgment come down for the 73 mil. So I'm convinced it was sitting on a shelf, Kevin, and they're just waiting for the right opportunity to drop it, where the 73 mil settlement gave them cover. Remington never even reduced his reasoning for the judgment to writing, which is uh, one of many. Let me give you issues for the U.S. Supreme Court where I'm going now, hopefully with help from the public. Issues for the Supreme Court. Complaint with different death certificates that were said not to be materially different, as I've explained. The scheduling conference not going down that rabbit hole. This is most important because it denied the defendant his defense. He wouldn't let me present the massive evidence I had that no one had died at Sandy Hook on the absurd ground that it had nothing to do with the truthfulness or accuracy of a death certificate from someone who allegedly died at Sandy Hook. My status as a journalist was never ruled upon. He set aside the reports of not one but two forensic document experts who sided with me he went ahead and made a summary judgment ruling when the basic fact of authenticity was in dispute. Let me say, by the way, a number of those who are familiar say this is the most ridiculous summary judgment they have ever seen, ever. A first-year law student would recognize this was outrageous and inappropriate, and yet the Wisconsin Supreme Court, in essence, allowed it to stand. He never reduced the reasoning for his decision to writing, as I've observed. 
The appellate court affirmed the official Sandy Hook narrative. They never took my case seriously, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court has now denied my petition for review. Let me just add, there's a fellow named Ron Avery out of Texas who knows a whole lot about defamation cases. He's put together a whole archive of the documents in my case. He was outraged by the appellate court treatment, and you can find his analysis to support the Sandy Hook narrative, Wisconsin Court of Appeals District 4 makes gross errors, which you can find on my blog at jamesfetzer.org. Now, there are a host of issues involved here, uh, and I want to pursue further, but share with you a couple of observations. I did a, a show with Scott Bennett. It's called Great Awakenings with Stephen Pidgeon, who's a rather well-known um, attorney himself who takes on controversial cases. And he pointed out that it appeared to him there was a case for deprivation of rights under color of law. In other words, uh, the judge in this case violated my rights. He abrogated my my constitutional rights under cover of law, meaning he he it was a form of dereliction of duty. Now, I'm given to understand that I cannot bring such a suit until I've exhausted all my other avenues, which in this case, of course, include going to the Supreme Court. Now, here's a letter uh, which I greatly appreciated about the Wisconsin Supreme Court decision. This was just, uh, oh, I don't know, a, a week or ten days ago. Jim. Like you and no doubt many of your other supporters, I'm profoundly disturbed by the denial of your petition for review of the Posner versus Fetzer case by the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the terse manner in which it was denied, if terse is even the correct adjective. Well, I can read you what the Supreme Court said. A petition for review pursuant to Wisconsin statute 808.10, having been filed on behalf of defendant appellate petitioner James Fetzer and concerned by this court, it is ordered that the petition for review is denied with $50 cost. That was a totality. No reasoning, no explanation whatsoever. So I think he's got it right if terse is even the correct adjective. He continues, yeah. it is incomprehensible. Yeah, terse on is an understatement. It, yes. It is incomprehensible on one level how any court in the land could even begin to consider that this is a proper judicial denial lacking as it is any reasoned legal analysis or justification for his decision. On another level, it is completely understandable given the state of utter corruption and capture we're facing in all sections of our government, legislative, judicial, and executive, and its agencies plus the complicit corporate media, entertainment, and tech sections. I was certain that you and your co-defendants would prevail in this case when it first came up. It seemed like a slam dunk. But over the years, since you published your fine book on the subject, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, and subsequently went through legal proceedings, it has become clear that the controllers involved will never tolerate a serious, credible threat to expose their frauds, deceptions, and criminal operations. And it is increasingly clear that they have the power to delay, cheat, obfuscate, censor, blackmail, bribe, and trap, propagandize, memory hole, etc., to prevent such exposures. He continues, As with the events of other real false flags and conspiracies you have covered, such as JFK, Wellstone, 9-11, 
Boston, Orlando, Parkland, etc., it sadly seems that truth about Sandy Hook will remain obscured to a lot of the general public for a long time, if not forever. Yet, notwithstanding this, I admire and applaud your determination to continue your efforts to bring out the truth about these events as you know it, to bring your petition to the U.S. Supreme Court, to continue to broadcast your shows, to continue to research, write, and sell books, engage in debates, celebrate, collaborate with other truth speakers, etc. He says some very flattering things at the end, which I greatly appreciate, but I believe are also true of others, including yourself. You are one of our few breathing national national natural treasures, an honorable American public intellectual with the courage to speak truth in the face of corrupt adversity. That in itself is a unique contribution and job well done. I thank you for it. Please keep up the good work. Eric. That was a super letter I wrote to Eric and said he made my day, Kevin, because, I mean, he was showing the kind of appreciation for my efforts that I greatly appreciate. But going to the Supreme Court is a rather challenging task. There are a lot of filing fees in a law. You have to pay the attorneys while I'm doing all of this on my own. I, I have had to establish now a fundraising site, which coincided with what the truckers were doing. So when, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the uh, GoFundMe stole the truckers' money, I realized GoFundMe was obviously not the way to go. They'd actually obscu- uh, obfuscated, they'd taken away two grand that I'd accumulated in the past by simply pressing a button and returning it to the donors. Yeah, they, they did that to me too. Yeah, go go f me. Uh, has yeah, right. Games. Go f me. I agree, Kevin. Go f me. So I realized that give send go was the way to go. So I've established now a crowdsourcing for defending the first and the second amendment at give send go. And here's a concise one minute or less summary of the situation I'm in. Okay. Book, so you wouldn't learn what really happened at Sandy Hook. It was a FEMA drill to promote gun control, presented as mass murder. Then they sued to shut me up, and the Wisconsin courts played along. I have the proof and the law on my side. What I don't have is the money. They want to do to us what they've already done to Canada. Take guns imposed tyranny, and it's on the way with Remington's help. First insurance, then registration, then confiscation. I'm asking SCOTUS to stop it. GiveSendGo.com funding Fetzer. Check it out. Noah Posner did not die at Sandy Hook. And what you would wow, see- are, you, are you allowed to say that, Jim? Because when I was in court with you, you know, that you were being threatened with all of these injunctions that you're not allowed to say this and not allowed to say that ever, anytime, in or out of court. Uh, Kevin, I'm just not allowed to make assertions about the death certificate, okay? And the fact, <laughs> okay. The, the, the fact is that, uh, Remington has paved the way here for this scam to use, uh, insurance as the way because if you have to insure your weapons, own your weapons, you're going to have to register them in order to have them insured. And once they're registered, there's a position for the government to confiscate them. Dave yeah, Hodge, mandatory gun insurance. It'll, it'll be sort of like the mandatory car insurance. 
Yes, that's exactly right. And as Dave Hodges observed years ago, in the 20th century, there were 19 democides, which is the wiping out, the slaughter of whole societies by their own governments, every one of which was preceded by gun confiscation. We cannot allow America to become number 20. Well, you know, speaking of, uh, of, of mass murders and democides and such, do you think the Ukraine war is breaking out at an extremely convenient time for the usual suspects whose master narrative about COVID and vaccines is crumbling? I mean, the Pfizer and Moderna's stock is just imploding even as we speak. And the truckers' protest is being emulated elsewhere, including here in the United States. It does seem that it's highly convenient for the uh, usual suspects to suddenly have this war uh, eclipse everything. Well, uh, yes, I agree that the 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 Biden administration wants a distraction, and that the the war in Ukraine provides it. However. While it has been historically the case in the past that the American public has rallied around a president when the nation has been attacked, as occurred with W in the wake of 9-11, where his, his poll numbers were in the pits, and after 9-11 they rose to historic highs as much as 85%, which is incredible, Given Biden's incompetence demonstrated during his withdrawal from Afghanistan, I believe the American public looks as this is just more incompetence on the part of Joe Biden. And let me point out, by the way, there's increasing awareness that Vladimir Putin has a point that the U.S. broke its promise with regard to NATO. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Kevin, the Los Angeles Times. It's only a, a, a few paragraphs. Uh, Moscow solidified its hold on Crimea in April, outlawing the Tartar legislation that had opposed Russia's annexation of the region since 2014, together with Russian military provocation against NATO forces in and around the Baltic. This move seemed to validate the observation of Western analysts who argue that under Vladimir Putin, an increasingly aggressive Russia is determined to dominate its neighbors and menace Europe. Leaders in Moscow, however, differ different story. For them, Russia is the aggrieved party. They claim the U.S. has failed to uphold a promise that NATO would not expand into Eastern Europe, a deal made during the 1990 negotiation between the West and the Soviet Union over German unification. In this view, Russia is being forced to forestall NATO's eastward march as a matter of self-defense. Get this. After the Berlin Wall fell, Europe's regional order hinged on the question of whether a reunified Germany would be aligned with the United States and NATO, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, or neither. Policymakers in the George H.W. Bush administration decided in early 1990 that NATO should include the reconstituted German Republic. In early February of 1990, U.S. leaders made the Soviets an offer. According to transcripts of meetings in Moscow on February 9th, then-Secretary of State James Baker suggested that, in exchange for cooperation on Germany, the U.S. would make ironclad guarantees that NATO would not expand, quote, one inch eastward. Less than a week later, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev agreed to begin reunification talks. No formal deal was struck, but all the evidence the quid pro quo was queer. 
was clear. Gorbachev has ceded to Germany's Western alignment in the U.S. would limit NATO's expansion, which, of course, we have grossly violated. Ukraine, Kevin, has become such a cesspool of uh, corruption. And, of course, ironically, that's where Joe Biden and his son Hunter were basically plundering the country, where Biden, as vice president, declared he would with the U.S. would withhold a billion dollars in foreign aid unless they fired the prosecutor who was investigating Burisma, where Joe's unqualified son, Hunter, had a position on the board of directors for fifty or $80,000 a month. In well, wait a minute, words, isn't, is, you wouldn't say Hunter's grifting is a vital national interest? <laughs> I love it, Kevin. And with your, your your ability for satire and penetration, let me just make the following point. You've observed, you have differences with me about whether or not Sandy Hook happened, that you're not well, quite... Well, I'm, I'm agnostic, and you, uh, yeah, you definitely have your belief. That's what, I, that's what I'm coming around to, that you're agnostic. But it doesn't matter if you're agnostic. It's not important to agree with me or not about Sandy Hook to recognize... That is a fundamental principle of the American jurisprudence that no one may be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. I was denied due process of law. Well, well Jim, this, this is the, the new new world order, apparently, right? You, you just wrote something about how the Canadian government thinks it can now block people's access to their bank accounts because of their political activism. Kevin, you're absolutely right, and that's why we have to fight this tooth and nail. So it's... It's not just for the First and the Second Amendment which makes such a difference to our way of life because they're going to use this case to compromise our ability to keep and bear arms by way of the insurance gambit, but it's depriving an American citizen of his right to due process to present a defense which was grossly violated here. So if you believe this is a real threat to American jurisprudence and what this country is supposed to stand for, please... Check out GoSendMe.com funding Fetzer. I would welcome your support. I have the law and the evidence on my side. What I need is the money. And if you can help me with the money, by God, I'm going to carry this to the Supreme Court and do my best to stand up for the rights of every one of us as American citizens. Okay, so that's GiveSendGo.com. And these alternative platforms are springing up uh, in the uh, – one after another, the big platforms are censoring and uh, deplatforming people. But these new platforms are springing up. Give, Send, Go is the fundraising platform that you're using. The truckers apparently were using it too. And I'm, I'm wondering if YouTube's having nuked all of these apparent evidentiary videos around Sandy Hook – has led to those same videos popping up on places like Rumble and so on. Uh, can people still see those videos, and if so, where? Well, they can find a lot of them on places like uh, 153news.net, on BitChute, uh, Rumble, other places. You can use the, the Wayback Machine if you dig into it. If you reach out to some of those who've been around a long time here, they may be able to help you track them down. But some of them are just completely outrageous, like... Uh, uh, David Wheeler, who is supposed to have lost his son, played two roles, not only a grieving father, but also uh, 
a SWAT member carrying a weapon upside down by the magazine on Dickinson Drive. It was uh, so. Are those videos still around? I know they were. Uh, quite, uh, I, uh, Mike, I mentioned that because Mike Adams featured him carrying a weapon uh, in his article about me as the most dangerous mind in America. Now, wasn't he carrying the weapon wrong? Oh, yeah. You don't carry a weapon upside down by the magazine. The magazines are made to be easily inserted and removed. So, I mean, this is something that uh, I supervise recruit training with 15 DIs and 300 recruits under my command in repeated training cycles, Kevin. The least qualified recruit one commit this blunder. And get that. He was married to a woman named Francine Wheeler, who turned out to be the personal assistant to Marine White, was a finance chairman for the Democratic Party. They both have acting credits. Barack Obama flew them, knowing they were gun lobbyists, to Washington, D.C. and had them give an impassioned speech from the Oval Office. Barack Obama was deeply involved in this. He nullified the Smith-Munn Act of 1948 by the Smith-Munn Modernization Act of 2012, just in time to bring a Sandy Hook where the Smith-Munn Act precluded the use of the same techniques of propaganda and disinformation the CIA was using abroad from being used at home, stage shooting, fake riots, paying people to be crisis actors. Obama paved the way, and we've been suffering the consequences ever since. Well, you think, Jim, that they might break out another big, maybe even 9-11 scale false flag to enrage the American people enough to be willing to ratchet up the war uh, on Russia in Ukraine. Now, Michael Rechtenwald in the first hour said he expects that the U.S. will actually go into Ukraine, maybe not boots on the ground, but definitely bombing, which, of course, is risking World War III. And I don't think American public opinion today is ready for it. As you say, uh, people are very unimpressed with Biden's performance and uh, mental acuity. But what if something terrible happened? Let's say there's a cyber attack that totally destroys all of our banking, all our gas station pumps can't function, nothing can function. Uh, a cyber attack has just wiped everything out. We're all like shivering in the cold in the dark. Uh, and then somehow the lights come on and Biden says, Putin did this. Uh, let's go I'd, get him. I'd put it the other way around, Kevin. As long as we don't interfere here, and Putin's made it very clear that he's not going to tolerate any outside interference by NATO or the United States, I think we're okay. But if we seek to interfere, he could just uh, ignite a, a bomb over the USA with its electromagnetic pulse that would wipe out all of our computerized components and we'd be dead in the water. That'd be they better than far, a cyber attack, I guess. They have mar far more sophisticated weaponry. You may recall the USS uh, Donald, uh, now they call it Donald Duck, was sitting in the uh, Crimean when a Russian plane overflew, and they neutralized all the uh, computerized components on the ship. Hundreds of Navy members got out because they could see the Russians were so far ahead of us. They have the best anti-missile missiles, the best anti-ship missiles. They have the best underwater torpedoes. These are virtually unstoppable. We do not want a war with Russia, Kevin because we won't like the outcome. Well, it's just obviously a terrible risk. And, I mean, even if a tiny fraction of the U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons go off, uh, we could be in for a nuclear winter, which would be uh, a very, very miserable experience with a sizable fraction of the population dying of starvation within a few years. So it's obviously not something to mess around with. And uh, we'll, So how are we going to get an anti-war movement going? 
Well, the anti-war movement was zapped by Nixon when he eliminated the draft. That had kept the American public, the families, connected with issues of war and peace because they knew their sons or daughters would be at risk. Yeah, and so how, it's hard for people to really imagine just how bad the risks are with, uh, with nuclear war. But we're going to have to leave it at that because we hit the end of the hour. So thank you, Jim Fetzer. It's always great uh, touching bases with you. And people can find that link to the Give, Send, Go fundraiser for your appeal to the Supreme Court by way of the radio blog for today, which is reachable through truthjihad.com. Click on the radio schedule link. Thanks again, Jim Fetzer. Take care. My pleasure, Tim. Bye-bye. Kevin Barrett here. Revolution.radio. Thank you for listening to the Air.